Okay, so, okay, now where was I? Um, anyway, the reason I love these passages, even though there's some hard things in it, I love them because this is so vivid to me, just, just life. It's just so full of life. The descriptions were just so full of life. It's, here we're given a picture of what it means to be living, really living in space, time, and history back during the reign of Saul. I mean, you can almost hear the sounds, and you can feel the fear that's going on. And, and I just love that. And, and yet again, what do we see? We get to see the curtain being pulled back. We get to see life from God's perspective. We see surprising actions and careless words, and we get to look more closely at what the heart motives are that, is, that are going on, because this is life in the warp and woof of intensity. This is Israel at war with her perennial enemy, the Philistines. And yet, over it all, what I want you to know, and I don't want you to lose sight of this, there's a different kind of war going on. It's a greater war. It's a war with eternal consequences, and it's the war that we still face because it's faith at war, and we're going to look at that this morning. But first, and this is, um, I just like doing this. This is not my favorite thing to do. We have several little cleanup things that we're going to talk about so that we can get to the heart of the passage. They're kind of bullet point issues that help us kind of clear up some some things in the, in the scripture that might have been confusing. But um, let me just say that, that the problem, I wasn't even going to address this, but the problem is that there is a problem. Verse 1, chapter 13. Right as you enter into this, there's something here. So we're going to talk about that in a minute. But first, I want, I'm just going to tell, this is one bullet point, it's real easy. I just want us to note that the Philistines were, during the time of the judges, and during Samuel's reign, during Saul's reign, and into David's reign, they were the grand enemy of God's people. If you look back to chapter 9, when the Lord spoke to Samuel about anointing Saul, this is what he said, what the Lord said to Samuel. He said, you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel and he shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Here's the thing. He is sub- one of the major things that Saul is supposed to do is to save God's people from the Philistines. He is supposed to defeat the Philistines. But here's another thing that is being said here. Saul is going to be a king on probation. The people have demanded a king and they want a king who will go out and fight their battles for him. You saw that last week. You saw it when they fought against the Amorites. And now they're going to be fighting against the Philistines. And they want a king who will go out and fight their enemies. But the question, the bigger question, the overall question that we have to constantly be asking is this. Is Saul God's king? You see, is this the king from whom all other kings are going to come? Is this the line through whom the Messiah is going to come? And in order to know that, then we have to know what is, what is in the heart of God of Saul. Because God wants a king who is a man after his own heart. And 
What is going to happen is the reality that much of the testing of what is in Saul's heart will be revealed in relation to his dealings in the midst of battle, in the midst of hard things, in the midst of testing. And in our passage today, we're going to be looking at that in the war with the Philistines. And what we're going to find here is we are going to find that Saul is going to fail at his calling. He does not defeat the Philistines in the greatness of the defeat that was open before him that he could have done. And we want to understand why that was. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Okay, so the next thing that we need to do, and I, ha- I was going to say more about this, and I was going over it, so I'm going to try to really summarize this really quickly, and I usually don't like to try to do things off the cuff, but stay with me. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm going to read you four passages, four translations of verse 1 of chapter 13, I'm, and I want you to hear how different they are, and you'll see some of the problem. Okay, here's the first one. Saul was blank years old when he began to reign, and he reigned dot, 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 two years over Israel. That's one translation. The one that's in in our lesson today is this, and this is the one we're going to kind of follow. Saul lived for one year, and then he became king, and when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. That means the Philistine war. Okay, here's another one. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Here's another one. Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 32 years over Israel. So how do we deal with that? Well, the problem has to do with how the translators see the timeline of what is going on. Some translators see that where we are in chapter 13 is a long time after uh, Saul was anointed king, that a long period of time has passed. The, the translators who did the, what is in our lesson today did not see it as a long t- period of time. They saw it mainly as a, as a fairly condensed period of time, like this, that Saul was anointed king, And then he was only anointed king. He wasn't made king at that point because we know Saul went home. And then after Saul went home, that he was there about a year, then he goes out to fight the Amorites. And after that, remember last week, Saul was made king. And then closely followed upon that, I don't know, maybe just a short time, then came the war with the Philistines, that that's a condensed time. Other people believe that this has been a long period of time. Okay, so why does that matter? Well, it matters because of the way other incidents unfold in our passage today. So, for example, one of them is in verse 3. It says this, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, or Gabeah, those are the same thing, and the Philistines heard of it. Okay, so... If this, so what happened, we have to go back to chapter 10. If these are all close together, we go back to chapter 10, verse 5. And many commentators believe that what has happened here, if you remember, Saul, Samuel told Saul, here's what's going to happen. You're, on your, you're going to, um, some men are going to come tell you the donkeys have been found. 
And then some priests are going to come, and they're going to give you two loaves of bread, and they're going to they're going to go on and give sacrifices. And then you're going to come upon a garrison of the Philistines. And they're going to be in the land of Israel. These Philistines are in the land of Israel. And they're going to, and you're going to see that garrison. And then you're going to go prophesy. And after you prophesy, the spirit is going to rush upon you and you're going to become a new man. And then Samuel says to him, after that happens, do what your hands find to do because God is with you. Now, most commentators, many commentators, believe that what Samuel was telling Saul is after the spirit comes upon him, after he's made a new man, that he's supposed to go and attack that garrison, the garrison of the Philistines, because that's, his, that's what God wants him to do. He wants him to be at war with the Philistines, that he was supposed to do that, but he did not do it at that time. Instead, he went home. Okay, so now Jonathan has attacked that, and this is about a year later. And so he has attacked it in Saul's place. We don't know if Saul sent him. We don't know. But now Jonathan has attacked this in Saul's place, and we see the seriousness of what that attack meant. It caused Israel to become a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. It was a call to war. That's what happened. Now the final thing, this is the final bullet point. Okay, so if we go back... um, After Samuel, this is back in chapter 10, this has only been about a year ago, after the attack on the Philistines, Samuel said this. He he says that Saul is, after that attack takes place, because this is going to cause war, he is to go, Saul is to go to Gilgal, he is to wait for Samuel seven days, and then Samuel will come and offer sacrifices, and he's going to show Samuel, Saul what to do. He's going to tell him how to fight this war. He's going to tell him how to win the war against the Philistines. And that's where we are today. So here's where we are. Samuel has not arrived, but the Philistines have. And they are gathering for war. And they are gathering in enormous numbers, and they're gathering to fight. And there are 30,000 chariots. Some believe that number's too high, but that's the number we have. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and there are troops. The passage says it's like the sand on the seashore. And how many men did Israel have? 3,000. At least that's how many they had at first. Let me paint a picture of what this must have been like. The Israelites are looking out. They're sending men, and they're coming back, and here's what they're telling them. They have so many. They have so many. They have chariots. They have everything. It's an amazing army. And we're given this piece of information about about the Philistines that we need to take into account. Iron. Yes, iron. We have to understand that the Philistines had a monopoly on iron, and they were gifted in molding it and shaping it into weapons. And as the army gathered, you can imagine that there they are, and they have all these wonderful weapons. They have swords, and they have spears, and their chariots are made of iron. They have great protection. Their weapons are as mighty as they are in number. And you know what? Israel has none. The only people who have weapons made out of iron are Jonathan and Saul. Okay, so imagine... Imagine what's going on here. You look at this army that so outnumbers you, and then they have not only superior in number, but they are superior in weapons. 
And the passage tells us that the people of Israel began hiding themselves. I might have done that too. They hid in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs because what they saw with their eyes overwhelmed them. They were so frightened, they figured this was going to be suicide. This was going to be death. And anyone who stayed, and most didn't, were terrified with a horror that they couldn't understand. And what is Saul doing? Saul's doing something good, actually. Saul is waiting. He's waiting for Samuel. He waits one day. He waits two days. He waits five days. He waits six days. It's late on the seventh day. And every day, the army of the Philistines have grown. They have grown stronger and stronger. And every day, Saul's army grows smaller and smaller. And in the camp of the Philistines, let's imagine that there is feasting and shouting and drinking. But in the camp of the Israelites, there is silence and waiting, and there is more and more desertion. Where is Samuel? You can imagine. Where is he? Look what's happening. Saul could wait no longer. At least that's what he thought. He could wait no longer. Do you feel the enormity of the strain upon him? Here's what's going on. Saul's army is dissipating rapidly. If he waits any longer, how will he ever be able to fight against this army? And, you, and yet, Saul knows something else. He doesn't dare go into battle unless the Lord blesses him. And so he reasons. The only thing for me to do is, Samuel's not here. My army is dissipating. I've got to do something. I've got to do it right now. And so he thinks the only thing to do is to offer sacrifices himself. Now, the sacrifice was only to be offered by the priest. But it's a desperate thing. It's a desperate time. He demands that the burn offering and the peace offering be brought to him at once. Now, just a little side note. You know what a burn offering is for? It is offered as an atonement for unintentional sin and is complete surrender to God. Do you see what a farce this is? Because he's not a priest. He shouldn't be offering this. He isn't waiting like the prophet of God told him to do. And he is not wholly surrendering to God. But Saul offers the burnt offering anyway. He does not get to the peace offering because what happens? Samuel comes. Saul is excited. Oh, good. Samuel's here because now he can tell me how I fight this army. What is God going to do? He goes to Samuel. There's no greeting from Samuel. Instead, he says these words. What have you done? And Saul, of course, explains exactly what he's done. Well, the people were scattering. You did not come in the time appointed like you said you would. And the Philistines are gathering for war. It's essentially that he said, what did you expect me to do? I have a war brewing. I needed to seek the Lord's favor and you were late. And so I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. Samuel's reply is stark. And frightening. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Referring back to waiting for God's prophet to come. For the Lord, if you had, the Lord would have established your kingdom 
over Israel forever. You would have been the line of when, from which all the kings came, including the Messiah. The Lord instead has sought after a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord demanded you. And you know what Samuel does then? He leaves. He leaves without a word of telling Saul what he should do next. This is the first unfolding in our passage of what is in the heart of Saul. And Saul is on his own. And the first thing he discovers is he has only 600 trembling men waiting to go into battle. Okay. Because time is short, we're going to jump broadly over a few things. This is where we continue to find faith at war. Note that faith in the hands of Saul has already been thrown aside. But you see, there is another warrior in this battle, and his name is Jonathan. And we know what happens. One day, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let's go over to the Philistine garrison. This is a different Philistine garrison on the other side. So they do, just the two of them. And they do not tell anyone, they don't even tell Saul that they're leaving. And as they're going there, as they're heading to fight against this garrison, just the two of them, Jonathan speaks to his armor bearer and he says this, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. What a contrast. You see, if Saul had had that attitude, he would have waited on Samuel. If he believed that God could save by many or by few, he would have waited. But he did not. You see, he could not wait because he saw his army dissipating. He was looking to the strength of men and not to the power and promise and strength of his God. Jonathan, on the other hand, sees with the eyes of faith. The armor bearer, you see, we notice, is all with Jonathan. He says, I am with you, heart and soul. He trusts Jonathan, but beyond that, he trusts Jonathan because Jonathan promotes trust in the Lord. And what else of Saul? Saul's army is leaving. His men are not staying with him, heart and soul. They are going everywhere. Another thing we see in Jonathan is that he has this great trust in the power and the goodness of the Lord, but he has no presumption because what does he say? It may be. I don't know what the Lord's going to be do, but it may be, it may be that he will answer us favorably. And so they pray to the Lord about what they should do. Should they go forth? The Lord answers favorably, and 20 men are killed by them that day. Now, that seems like a small number when you have 30,000 chariots, 10,000 horsemen, and you have foot soldiers, and 20 men have been killed but something greater happens. In the midst of Jonathan's great faith, God does an even greater work. He causes panic in the camp, in the field, and among the people of the Philistines. And then beyond that, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Two men against an army of immeasurable power and numbers who moved out in faith, trusting in the greatness of their God to do immeasurably more than they could even ask or think and this is what God does. He does that great thing. And what happens? 
the other scene, we begin to see what happens. Saul is sitting under a pomegranate tree. Think about that. He is sitting under a pomegranate tree, and his sword is sheathed. Where has Jonathan been? Jonathan has stepped out in faith. He has gone to do great things because he has a great God. He has trusted in God. Saul is sitting there paralyzed. He's sitting there with his 600 men and with the priest. The narrator is careful to point out that the the family line of this priest, he is the son of Ahitab, who is Ichabod's brother. Remember what that means, glory gone. He is the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli. And the priest is wearing the ephod. One commentator writes this, Saul, having lost the dynamic counsel of Samuel, is left with the disgraced counsel of the house of Eli. But there they are sitting. All of a sudden, the watchman begins shouting. He shouts out, something is happening. The multitudes are dispersing. And the, and the word there, is, it means the, the multitudes are melting away. They're melting here and there. They're running every which way. And Saul wants to know, well, what's happened? What's going on? And so he looks around to see who has gone from camp, what has happened. And it's discovered that it is only Jonathan and his armor bearer. Saul immediately calls for the priest to bring the ark of God. And many believe that was not the ark of God. It was the ephod. Bring that, that they, we might acquire what, inquire of the Lord what we should do. The ephod is a really strange thing. So we're not going to go into that. It's just, it's a way that these lights light up on, on the priest's vest. And they light up and they, one, you can ask of one thing and one of another. I, I don't know. But anyway, that's what it is. So, um, but you know what Saul says? The disarray grows in the battle. And he says to the priest, never mind. Never mind. Do you see what Saul's doing? He's silencing the Lord. Lord, I don't need to hear from you. I know exactly what to do. And you see, because now is the time for this king, King Saul, to jump into the fight when everyone is running away. Saul is not the only one, however, because men start coming out of tombs and holes and from behind rocks. It says that even the Israelites who had crossed over to join the Philistines turn into Israelites once more. And the section closes with these words, So the Lord saved Israel that day. My guess is that Saul would write a different headline. The last section, and we're going to barely touch on this because of time, yeah, because time. This is the section where Saul again acts foolishly by making a rash vow. He demands a fast of his soldiers in the midst of war. Who does that? This is his reasoning. No eating until I am avenged on my enemies. Now imagine they are fighting with these armies that have these swords made of iron. And they are fighting, and they are fighting, and they're fighting, and they can't have any food. And it is because Saul wants to be avenged on his enemy. And the Lord is out of the equation. We hear no mention of him. So, I'm... Turn two pages, and now I'm going to be lost. Okay. Okay, so we find that Jonathan, who had been fighting, did not hear about the vow. You remember reading this. He tasted the honey. 
He's told that he has broken the vow and, and that he is cursed under the vow. He is dumbfounded, of course, by his father's foolishness, and he says this, how much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found, for now the defeat of the enemy has not been great. Moving ahead, what happens? Saul wants to continue the fight against the Philistines and follow them into the darkness. He is ready to go, but the priest stops him and suggests that they inquire of God. Hmm, what an idea. So they're going to inquire of God, and so Saul, using the, the ephod, asks this, Shall I go down after the Philistines, and would you give them into the hand of Israel? But the Lord did not answer. Saul would not hear from the Lord. The Lord will not answer him. There was silence. How does Saul take the silence? Saul assumes that the silence is because of the sin on someone else. And it comes to light that Jonathan has eaten some of the honey during the vow. And Saul ironically says to Jonathan, what have you done? And Saul is more than ready. You know what he's going to do? He's going to execute his son because he tasted of the honey. Jonathan, who is the one who in faith has been used to God to bring about this great victory in which Saul wants to be avenged, and he wants to kill his son because he tasted honey. The men of Israel would have none of it, and they ransomed Jonathan. We tried to figure out what that meant. We're not sure exactly what that means, but somehow they would not let Saul kill Jonathan. My friends, here's the thing. The silence of God was not because of Jonathan. It was because of Saul. Saul is the one who made the foolish, faithless vow. It is a king who wanted to be avenged on his enemy. It was a king who trusted in burnt offerings and sacrifices, but not in the Lord your God to whom the sacrifices had been made. It was a king whose heart was far from God. Saul was preoccupied with the Philistines, and he thought of God as an add-on to that endeavor. Saul did not learn, he did not learn, that his relationship with God was the only thing that mattered. My friends, here's our lesson. Our stories are written in the midst of our days, in the midst of joy and sadness, of wars and rumors of war, of, of sickness and death. But that is only the stage. Those are only the circumstances of our lives because our lives are being lived in the presence of a living God. And that is the true story of where our story is being written. We cannot let our circumstances define who we are. God defines who we are. We see that Saul did not go that night to pursue the Philistines. He left, and indeed the war with the Philistines would continue and continue. The defeat would indeed not be great that day because of Saul's sin. And our chapter ends, interestingly, by recounting the many wars that Saul fought and the many victories he won. But you see, those are just, that's just the stage on where things were playing out. Because Saul was not the king that God was seeking. He was not a king after God's own heart. 
But you see, the true spiritual war was going on. And it would take far more than Saul or even David to win that battle. It would take God's own son. God would give his son over to death, not because of a foolish vow, but because of an eternal covenant that would never be broken. His beloved son would be faithful in everything the father asked, and he would become the father's offering for us. And on the cross, when Jesus cried out to his father, Father, where are you? As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, and for the first time and for the last time, when Jesus spoke, nothing happened. There was just a horrible, endless silence a silence that shook the universe, a silence that we deserved and we will never hear because Jesus took that silence for us. Let's pray. Father, um, it's so easy to get lost in the days and the hours and the mundane things of our lives and to forget that our lives are being lived out before you. Would you fill us with your spirit? Would you let us see Jesus? Would you let us trust in the words that you say? Would you let us not ignore what you call us to do and who you call us to be and how you call us to love and how you call us to lay down our lives for others? Would you let us be people like Jonathan who step out in faith? We pray that for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen.